It seems to me that Irish scholars do not really have any idea, do not realize at all, how remarkable the Irish genealogies are. Uh, for the sake of comparison, the entire genealogies of the Merovingian kings in the St. Gaul manuscript 732 extends from the words primus rex francorum to the final words dagobertum and contains in bad Latin 13 short lines, 49 words in all. These are the Merovingian kings of Francia. The genealogy of Charlemagne uh, is pretty thin too. The emperor of the Franks has a single line descent of seven forebears, taking him back to Ansbertus, a senator, believe that if you will, who married Blethilde, daughter of Lothair, king of the Franks, their son Arnoldus Illuster Vir, uh, whose two brothers are represented as bishops, one a martyr, and he has a sister, a saint. Do you believe that? And he is father of Bishop Arnulfus, and that Bishop Arnulfus is grandfather of Pippin, mayor of the palace, and that gets you straight to Charlemagne. Hardly a distinguished background, and hardly a detailed one either. By any standards, the Irish genealogies are, are awe-aspiring in their detail. Um, BB, in its present state, contains 70 large folios of genealogy. Folio 69, 86 are missing, and there's a chasm, as Nollick pointed out in the manuscript. And it's very likely that the missing folios and contained mostly genealogy. So in order to get a feel for the, give you an idea of the size of this thing, uh, I counted the words on folio 72, that's uh, recto, that's page 123 of the facsimile. It's a fairly typical page. And it comes out at 713 words. Now you multiply 713 by 2 and by 70, and you come out just shy of 100,000 words when the manuscript was intact. And it's densely full of names and peoples and families and lineages. So if we compare the Irish genealogies for the early period, we get the following result. If you take the the Kirigalukra, who are hardly the most distinguished uh, royal family in Ireland, um, the Iambrit MacImpetha have 18 lineages, Clown Angon MacImpetha 35 lineages, Eorne MacImpetha 9 lineages, Elukta 15 lineages, Ecovrete 7 lineages, Iaraba, the royal family, has 57 lineages. Mark that. That's a theme of mine. The Ehorn have 12 lineages, and we can add in the Altriga with uh, nine lineages. Now, how does this work out at? 162 lineages. Now, on folio uh, 91 verso B, the scribe of the Book of Animort writes, Hic plurima praetor mito, quam vis salter cashel tenet. Now that same remark is in the corresponding passage in the Book of Lecan. And uh, it, end, it is just before the genealogy of Mahuin, king of Kirge, who flourished around 1130. 
enough to suggest that the genealogy, the, uh, the latest pieces in that genealogy were ad entered about that date, about mid-12th century. So now if we look at the lands where all these lineages lived, and roughly speaking, you, it makes, and I, I, this is rough now, and I must say it's rough because uh, Nodig uh, Omril is looking me straight in the eye as I say this, <laughs> uh, and he is our, one of our leading authorities in place names, but uh, roughly the Barney, Virachti, Connor, Clan Morris, and Trukanakme will get you the area of the Kiriga in, uh, in, the, uh, in the early period. And that adds up to 400,662 acres, 626 square miles, roughly. For those of you who are numerate uh, in uh, metric, 1,621 1, square kilometers. Half of it is rough land, very rough, poor grazing and mountain. If every lineage had an equal share, which is never the case, it would work out that the lineages would have 2,473 acres of bad land each, with, a, with some exceptions. So that, how far down are we going socially? We're going very far down socially. The Ligere that Nolig mentioned earlier on, they're roughly, and again, let me stress, it's pretty rough, but not too far out, the baronies of Upper and Lower Navan County Meath, rather better land, and they worked out at, between them, 43,486 acres. Um, that would be uh, 67.9 square miles. And there are 79 lineages of the Legere mentioned in the genealogies. All of these are simultaneously prospering lineages of Legere in the 7th, 8th, and 9th centuries. So here you might work out that each lineage would work out with 550 acres each. Remember, a lineage is not a family. A lineage is made up of several families. So if every lineage had an equal share then, which they didn't, you'd have that sort of, you'd be down to gentlemen mead farmers. So why did scholars at the end of the 14th century spend so much precious resources valuable time and hard labor on the genealogies of people who lived between six and eight centuries before their time. People in the night of time, as they were concerned, as they might be concerned, whose kingdoms had long since faded. And when I say faded, remember, they had really faded in the sense that large numbers of the lineages in the Kiriga local genealogies had faded early on. The Six to nine lineages of the Altriga had been overtaken by the Kirige, kicked out of the best piece of land in Kerry. There aren't too many. And um, had, had been reduced very much. Not only that, had the Kirige Lokra kings, the Okruhur Kiri, not only had they taken over most of the, these lineage lands, but they themselves were rubbed out by the Anglo, by the, by the English invasion. And the, the, the lands that most of these lineages lived in are now in the barony of Clan Morris, controlled by the Munster Fitzmorrises, are vassals of the Earl of Desmond. And all of these powerful lineages have been snubbed out 
Stop that. Gone. And when you look at others of them, and I'll be looking at in a moment, they're in Leinster, they're in Ulster, east of the Ban and Loch Ney, they're in parts of Meath and Louth that had long been conquered by others and finally had been conquered by the Anglo-Norman settlers. So there's a question. What are they up to spending? They're, they're spending the results of slaughtering a couple of herds of calves at its very basis, recording all of this detail. So the, before I turn to address that question, I want to look at another, and that is, how old are the Irish genealogies? And can we form an estimate of how old they are? Well, here's one way to look at it. Oral memory is good for about 100 years, on average. That is to say, people know who their, their father, their grand, if they're lucky, their father, their grandfather, and would have vague notions about, about a great-grandfather. But beyond that, you're into, you're into dream, dream country. So if, the, if you look at the Irish genealogies, as they are in the manuscripts, in the 12th century manuscripts and in the, in the 14th, 15th century manuscripts, and look at where are the where are the origins of the of the lineages placed, and if you look, you'll find Legere, ah, fifth century, and all his uh, all his siblings are represented as ancestors of the Inel. Uh, just look south at uh, look at the Econel Gaura. Econel Gaura, the ancestor of the Econel Gaura, is placed roughly in the fifth, perhaps early sixth century. So you find right across the Irish genealogical corpus. There's a tendency to place the lineage eponym and ancestor in the 5th century. This would point to beginning written recording a century later in the 6th, somewhere in the 6th. So I've taken a few other genealogies, and now there's a lot of detail in my handout. Some of this detail is to provide occupational therapy to distinguished Celtic scholars who are bored stiff with this business. <laughs> and they can etymologize the names and do other interesting things, or check the verbal forms. Um, but I mean them as samples of Irish, early Irish genealogical texts, because the texts change over time. And the big watershed is the arrival in Ireland of Isidore's etymologies. And Isidore's etymologies contains the very pregnant statement that all the Europeans descended from Japheth. And this is why we start taking genealogies right back to Japheth. And these long-tailed stories of Meal of Spain and back to Japheth, the ones that caused uh, the famous uh, Arno Barst, who uh, wrote about the Irish, he wrote briefly about the Irish genealogies. I'll quote what he said. Oh, he said, the proliferating, endlessly complicated and muddled tribal sagas and genealogies of the Irish, a people wrapped in dreams and introverted. And that, to be fair, is the reaction of very many people to the Irish genealogies, including a lot of Irish people. The first early example I quote here, how early are the Irish genealogies? Number one is De Fabulis Connacht, well, that Connacht is probably, should be Connacht, uh, meant it to Connacht, Movan, Movan, and De Ratio in the Nidus. And 
it's a story about how the Firbolg were bumped out of Clare, bumped out of uh, Clare north of the of the Shannon estuary, and uh, we, we can go into the details privately, but um, they were pushed out and then tacked onto the end of this is a story that the teacher, the master of Mulogamuk Waith Bonig, the great Irish exegetan scholar who died in 661, that his teacher in turn was, was, the, uh, was Bikku, and he was from Clonmac Noise, and he was a holy priest and a scribe and all that, and he derived from these people. Okay, now count back. This is, this is Mulaga's teacher, and this is his genealogy. So this is cooking up a genealogy for somebody. It's pointing to his origin, a man who would have flourished around 630, 640. And around 630, 640, somebody is saying that a distinguished scholar and priest can be the, um, the son, the descendant of the the underlings, the descendants of the Firbolog, who were driven out of Clare some time, some long time previously. Well, you don't write that sort of thing much later than um, six, the middle of the 7th century or a bit earlier. So that's the point. And, and remember, look at most of the texts in Latin. The more Latin in an Irish genealogy, the earlier it is. So anybody who wants to defend oral tradition here could explain that one. Um, now, the second example I, I take, because we can't spend our time analyzing it too closely, is the story about the Menapi, the Monig. And this, I, there's a citation here from the Vita Tripartita, and I put in a translation. And Fioch, the man with, uh, who was chosen to be abbot uh, of Schleite, uh, you know the story, and Duftuk Makologos says, I got a good guy, he's gone into Connacht in a, on a poetic trip, but he'll be back and we'll get him. But the text says that Fioch is one of the Monig. And then it goes on to explain who these Monig are. And they're at odds with the kings of South Leinster. And then these people have a wider history. And skip forward to the end of that section and you will see that there is a very good equivalent of Munig in the term Menapia. It's an exact equivalent. Where do I get Menapia? I get that from um, uh, the Ptolemy's geography. Now Ptolemy's geography has been the result, has been subjected to some recent research. You know that Ptolemy's, all the maps of Ptolemy's um, Ptolemy's maps of Ireland, forget them. The maps are all derivative. Even if the new history of Ireland has one, forget it. But there's other things you could forget in the new history of Ireland too. Um, but what he does is he gives you, in his way, latitude and longitude for places. And there's a systematic error. And what these, these fellows, uh, Kleinberg and his friends, have done in this book uh, published... Uh, in Darmstadt in 2012, is they have, they have gone on the mats where I can follow them, and they correct the systematic error. So that they are telling us now that Ptolemy is placing the Menapii at um, 
52.20 and 6.27. And that's a real, a real figure. Well, if, they do, if he does, he's fixing them about 5 to 10 miles north of Wexford Harbour. And they're in the right place. Because guess where the family of Duftuk Makolugar are, are, are located? Six to ten miles north of Wexford Harbour. At our cabin. And according to a, a corrupt text in the Saints genealogies, this is where Dind Flatha Kinoel Lugud is. Their headquarters. So this is beginning to hang together. So then you look and you see where the money elsewhere in Ireland. And you pick him up in the in Tokvark sorry, Tokvark Emre in uh, Lusk. Forgalmanok is located in Lusk. And where is Lusk? A few miles away from Drimmanok. And where is Drimmanok? Drimmanok is on the coast. And it is a major sub Roman site. And then you there, if you read the text quietly to yourselves, um, these texts should be kept between consenting adults. <laughs> you will see that they're in the north of Ireland as well. And where are they in the north of Ireland? They're on the Arts Peninsula. And where's the Arts Peninsula? It is separating Belfast Lock from Strangford Lock. And what is, Bel and what is Strangford Lock? It's the port for Downpatrick and so it begins to look as if these are, are, are um, maritime people. And where do they come from? In the, if they're equivalent of the Minapia of the continent, where are they coming from? They're coming from south of the Scheldt, in the northwest of the, of the Diocese of Tournai, on the coast. And who are their next door neighbors? The Kaukai. And who are the Kaukai? Well, Ptolemy thinks they're in Ireland too. Are they, is that Kukvog? I don't know. So we have absolute evidence that the Menapia are at and north of Wexford Harbour in, in 180 or so AD. And they have moved up to Glenishan and Sleti uh, by the earliest Irish records. So are we, we must be pointing to an Irish record that is very old. And that is remembered by the community of Schleite who attribute their foundation to, to St. Patrick uh, inaugurating Fioch as a bishop and founder of Schleite. And Fioch is categorized as a member of the Monig. So our, if we were to say this is probably a record coming from the 5th century, we're probably not putting it too far. Now the next one I want to look at is the Konilne, and the Konilne Martivne are in North Louth. Looking eastwards from North Louth, there's one place that strikes you over the, just over the horizon, the Isle of Man, and that is where we find the Konilne active in the fifth century. Now, you can, Deparizia Konilne Martivne gives you an early text of the and of the of these people and stuck down in the in the in the third line from the bottom of the text citation is Bioed Maku Loga. And sure enough, there is a nice Ogham stone 
in the other man, by Vadonas Maki Mukai Kunavalla, that is to say, Bairdon of the Kunalda. There's a strong, I, I'm not the person who discovered this. Francis Byrne has it in his book, but as I say there, he doesn't bother with references or citations, which is a common performance of the same learned man. Uh, and, uh, but it looks very like that the Irish genealogies here, these early genealogies of the Kunilna, contain a name that is attested, the same person is attested in an Ogham inscription. So there's a lot of evidence pointing to historical information coming from the very early 6th century and possibly from the 5th, in the very oldest stratum of the Irish genealogies. And that old stratum of the Irish genealogies has nothing to say about Meal of Spain and Japheth and all the long-tailed genealogies that you get later. So this all points to genealogical material that is unaffected by a reading of Isidore of Seville. And we know that that's Ireland before 650. So there's a whole, a whole schlicht of the Irish genealogies that, are going, that is going back to the, at, at the minimum to the first half of the 7th century and possibly containing material much earlier. So, um, Orosius, by the way, is the only man in antiquity who seems to know that the Irish occupied the Isle of Man. But then I believe the Irish occupied Orosius. They held him here as a captive, like St. Patrick, much earlier on. So now, the Irish genealogies are very old, but they contain vastly other uh, amounts of material. And I'm talking now about the losers, the Atatutha. Atatutha, if you look at your handout, there's their head of their section, section B, and I put in some lists to amuse you, and they're interesting and long lists. Are these all making up? No, they're not. They're real. Uh, just pick out one or two. Dal which is Alan Munster, that's Kiltili, and these are the Dal, the Church of Kiltidil is the church of Dal Tidal, and Dal Tidal, when they were survived the Ogonot, claimed to be uh, left-hand descendants of Alil Olam and therefore Ogonot themselves. How far that was believed, I, I don't believe it believe very much. And the, the, the Bentriga and others, they are real peoples. Somewhere in the seventh century, it appears to me, Irish genealogical scholars began to compile lists of the failures the subordinate communities who were rent payers or who were paying, who were, and so I put in a whole list of them there for you that you can look at. The Dacia list is another one, and that is a list of peoples that are supposed to have been subordinates of the Dacia of Munster. And again, they're real people. Start with the Sevenriga, the, the first name in the list. We have actually distinguished scholars of the 7th century who claim to be descended from the Sevenriga. And this is a list then of a whole series of communities stretched across the Dacia territories, stretching right up to Lockgar and, and probably to Dacebjog in the barony of Dees and small county uh, in Limerick. So these are actual records. 
And these peoples have, there's a form their names take. They are made, compounded with Korka, Dol, Rige, and the collective Ne. Now, the fact that your name is in Rige doesn't mean that you were a failure. After all, the Kirige and others were important people. And the fact that Dol is in your name doesn't mean you were a failure. Dol Narida and Dol Riyadha are very successful peoples. Korkavashkin and Korkamro are quite successful. So, but they're pointing to an earlier period, as MacNeil pointed out, than the names that are made with E and Shiel and so on. So these, uh, again, at number five, I have the rent-paying community as a monster, a unique list uh, in uh, the uh, Academy Manuscripts Dossier 1-2, which would otherwise have been lost had it been, not been copied into that manuscript. And in all of the major, family, major dynasties, you get lists of the orthlintiv, the forslintiv of a given community. And who are these? The losers again. And I've put in one example here for you, the first linter of the Iachokolod, the Iachokolod, the dom dominant lineage in the Dalfiatuch, in the ruling house. And here are the peoples who are the subordinate communities. The, the, the first linter, additional, additional lineages. And these ones, it, the text says, are the, are the seven the seven rent-paying communities that were in the land before the coming of the Iachuk. Where would you get an exact parallel of that? Read the book of Joshua, where you have the communities, the conquest communities in Canaan, who, were, who are stated to have survived the conquest by the Hebrews and who are now subordinate peoples in the area. Exactly similar layout. So these first linter of the Yakuk, you can see there's a whole bunch of Riga peoples and Dol peoples and Kondilne, a branch of the Kondilne there. And he says there are seven, but there are actually nine. A very common one in which that means that there are two more tacked on. So these are records in the sense that they are archives of a remote past. Now we turn to the organization techniques of these texts. And I don't think anybody has actually commented very much on the, um, the way these genealogies are organized. But if you have tens of thousands of individuals and hundreds of lineages to account for, you have to organize them. Because you, texts like these are very demanding. So nowadays we alphabetize them and we do various other things. But how do they manage these texts? Because they are not the, uh, they are not the written form of some oral tradition in whatever with the many meanings attached to that term. The genealogies are the products of historical scholarship. The profound relationship between genealogy and hagiology is apparent on both sides. Saints play a major role in the genealogies. And indeed, there are separate collections of genealogies of the saints that Nollig alluded to, which, by the way, are very old. Some of them are very old indeed, much older than their editor thinks. In the hagiography, the saints' paternal and maternal genealogy is very frequently carefully given. 
And in the hagiology, like the matrology of Tala, the matrology of Angus, the matrology of Gorman, the later matrology of Donegal, the genealogical connections of the saints are sometimes very carefully given. And places like Bangor and Movila figure very prominently in the early genealogies of the uh, Dal Narida and of the, of the Olive. And Patrick is all over the place, blessing the lineage that will be successful, cursing the ones that lost. And he is doing exactly the same, for example, in the Muske genealogy. So close that whoever has edited the Muske genealogies has been reading the Vita Tripartita too. And the saints of Lenition are very important in the Evadica genealogies. So, uh, and the genre model, of course, is the, is the Bible. Principally the Old Testament biblical genealogies. And I list them there. Genesis Genesis 10 and 30, Genesis 49, Numbers 1 to 4, Numbers 26, Joshua. Joshua was also read by Oliver Cromwell, which results you know. Uh, and 1 Chronicles 23 to 26. And I didn't put in Paralipomelon, but there are a whole lot of more genealogies in Paralipomelon. And many years ago, I think about 18 years ago or so, I, I argued that the structure, the way the Irish genealogies are laid out, is modelled on the way the Old Testament genealogies are laid out. I didn't point out that the Irish genealogies are far better, and far more extensive, and far better organised. But they learned a lot of laying out genealogical tables from biblical literature, and of course the higher high reaches of Irish genealogy, the ones that go back to Meal of Spain and onwards back to Jaffet, they learned that kind of technique from their study of Isidore of Seville. So this, these are no bag-eyed brahans from Castle Island working away on inventing their own world. They are, in, in, they are using the, the Bible as a very good model. Now the, I want to talk about one or two things about, about the way I'll give you an example there about in method one. Look at method one. Uh, they, they have various kinds of things. Per, per, they call that text Peritia Kreyavkuinasa Minigudchanakasa. And I gave you a model of how they do it. That's the layout. By the way, they didn't invent that layout. They took that layout from the Bible. And I've made it very simple. As I say, that's, that's so on for ten generations with occasional listings of wives and daughters and remarks on places and events, members who became churchmen, were killed in famous battles, etc. And if you look at the, the document I've given you, the model I've given, there are only, there are only 54 uh, individuals in that diagram, and there are no duplicate names. So that's simplicity itself. A real genealogical test could have 500 names, and 25% of the names could be duplicates. So there's plenty of room for going wrong there. So if you set out a genealogical track like that, what they do is they, they give you a check by using re structured redundancy as a means of controlling their text. So you get a couple of pages of that kind of stuff, by which time you're thoroughly bewildered, and they give you a tabular pedigree these are coming from, from, from origin to the present, these type of texts. 
Now they give you a tabular pedigree that comes from a distinguished person of the present right back to the lineage ancestor. So that gives you a check and a location and something to go by. Now there's also a second thing they do uh, is um, they, um, this structured redundancy is very important because structured redundancy uh, is, uh, you may or may not know about structured redundancy in uh, the digital text and digital communications. Uh, it is rightly associated with the name of Claude, Claude uh, Elwood Shannon, uh, the person to whom you owe the, the father of information theory, the person to whom you owe the fact that you can scratch your CD and will still play. That is to say, there's a whole lot of additional material, redundancy material, that checks the document and verifies it and makes it work. Now, what these guys are doing is they're, up, up, they're up applying to the genealogies a type of redundancy theory because they're repeating what they've said but repeating it in a different way. And when they have, a, they give you a string of genealogies that are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven genealogies. In the first one, they will give you the whole line from the founder down to the back, uh, to, from the, the contemporary person they want to talk about right back to the founder. Then in the five or six more that will follow immediately, they will give you just an abbreviated form until you get back to the common ancestor. So once, so you spare time. But they'll do, they lap them. They lap with two or three persons so that you make the connection properly. So there's redundancy in order to prevent ambiguity. Because you remember dealing with names that repeat themselves. So that's another way of doing it. That's another cross check. You'll get, you'll get loads of good examples of that if you were, were, were you to turn to the Book of Alimot, pages 140 to 145, where the Muskegee genealogies are, and there are plenty of fine examples of that kind of redundancy. And the third one is they give you a list of the nodal points of lineages and hyperlineages. That is to say, the ancestors at which the various lines converge. And it takes the form of a prose text with entries in the form. At X, son of Y, the lineages of A and B converge. So that again, here you have another. You have another double check on how the, how the, thing, how the thing is going to work. So a, a great deal of thought and care has gone into the planning of the layout of the genealogies. And in my experience, they rarely fail. I've come across examples where they're hanging lineages that you can't connect. I'm sure Nolik has too. And, but they're very, very scarce, very, very rare. Normally, you get in the genealogical tract what the editor of the or creator of the genealogical tract meant you to get. So, uh, now I want to turn to perhaps the most important part of the message one has, and that is an evolutionary psychology message and the struggle for survival. Um, there's a very frightening, in a way, text in uh, the book of Ballymote, which goes into the business of Athothuatha and failed lineages rather more than most. And this is, uh, I've, I've written it in here, it says, 
From them, a tributary rent, these are the Athachthotha, grew up on the free families of Ireland. That is, the free families deprived them of their lands for which they used to do service, and they died out. And the free families overpowered them and took their land from them so that the free families continued subject, therefore, to the tributary rent which had remained attached to the land, for the men of Ireland are all free, except for the peoples we have reckoned with their kindreds and families. Now, what this text is telling you, it, 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 you don't have to believe uh, the, pri the primary purpose of this passage is to explain why are there free families, noble families in Ireland, that are paying rent on their lands? But the explanation of why they're paying rent on their lands is where the real message is carried. That is to say that the people who have lost out, they, free, they died out because the free families took their land off them. They overpowered them and took their land. And they're gone. Well, where did they go? And the answer is that the theory of um, evolutionary psychology fits this one best. In all populations, we'll, we'll stick with the higher animals for the moment, um, the, the tendency is the weak and the, those, who have, those who are strong overthrow the weak, outbreed them, and the weak do not replicate. And so that it's survival of the fittest, and that this applies to human population just as much as it applies to all other taxa, all other genera, all other branches of living creatures. And when, you, when the historians talk about the Roman Empire, they explain why the Romans expanded and how the Roman Empire grew up. And they explained everything except what was going on. And that is that a population was expanding and outbreeding and taking over the lands and resources of loads of other human populations and replacing them. You can, you can take the, the, uh, the colonization of the New World as an example of European biological expansion. Now, if this is the way human population works in the round, you don't have to say that populations have to be, like animal populations, they don't know what they're doing. They're obeying an evolutionary um, imperative. And what is happening in Ireland is what happens everywhere else, except the Irish are quite open about it. That is to say, the aristocrats, those with power, they take the fertile females and they deprive the lower classes of reproduction. So if you imagine this, that there was no O'Donoghue in Killarney, not a single O'Donoghue in Killarney, not one in the year 1100. Take the fiance of Elizabeth, and just read the number of O'Donoghues who are owning land in the Killarney area. O'Donoghue Moore and O'Donoghue of Glenflesk and O'Donoghue of... 
And he said, what happened? There is no McCarthy south of the Blackwater in 1100. Well, look at what's happened since then. Look at the proliferation of the O'Neills of Ulster, the O'Briens. I'm going to give you a figure on the O'Briens. And here it is. The, in the beginning of the 8th century, not one member of the Dalgash, a group of peoples that later became called, had the most prominent surname, O'Brien, had owned one perch of land in Clare or in Tipperary. They were dished, they were dished Tushkit in the barony of small county, in and about Brewery, which is known for terrible people to come out of it. <laughs> um, in, and now, in the beginning of the 8th century then, they had nothing except the barony of small county in their petty kingdom. By the middle of the 12th century, all had changed, excluding the immediate royal house and its estates. There were and just listen to this, 13 lineages descended from Tadelvuk, son of Thive. That Tadelvuk died in the 14, on the 14th of July, 1086. There were 15 lineages descended from Lorcan, grandfather of Brian Baru, 28 of the Evlides, 8 descended from Downcoon, Makinadic, 18 from Cuscara, son of Lorcan, 13 from Mahoon, Makhtadelvig, 35 from Algel, Makhtadelvig, 23 from Oku, Makhtadelvig, 84 from Ikhashene, 22 from Cartan, descendant of Blythe, 6 from Conalech Luath. There were 12 lineages in the old territory in Limerick. This adds up to 249 lineages, of which only 12 belong to the hereditary lands. How did this happen? Where did they get lands to live on? Where did they get offices in church to hold? Where did they, where did they go? And literally, they wiped out, they outbred the indigenous population of the lands they conquered. And you can go through the Clare Telephone Directory and they're all there. <laughs> all of them, without exception probably. So they displaced the previous holders. And here is the thing, it's the same the whole world over. And if you take the the International Anthropological Guide to this problem, you will find it happens everywhere. It also happens in the countries we don't think it's happening on because if you exclude non-canonical children, as they do in continental Europe and in England, it looks like they're not behaving. They're behaving very well. So the French Lord of Beaulieu or the, the Duke of Norfolk are all good, straight up living Christian people on the surface but they're no different from the aristocracy anywhere else. In Ireland, they, they, the non-canonical children bore their father's name, inherited the land, inherited political positions, and therefore Irish royal dynasties don't die out. But if you look at the, at the royal dynasties and the noble dynasties in, in Western Europe, you'll find there's an incredibly high rate of failure. 
and up to up to 50% failure per century and a half in the in the in the Frankish aristocracy. The Irish aristocracy does not have failures of that kind because the aristocratic groups outbreed. They have access to women. The women have a good reason to uh, associate themselves with these because that's a woman's way to the top. Because her royal son or her aristocratic offspring by the local lord are her key and her biological key, her genetic key to the future. So the theory of um, uh, evolutionary psychology is verified. And the Irish genealogies provide a unique, utterly unique, the way, way of testing this hypothesis. It is the most important series of documents on this aspect of human population behavior anywhere in Western Europe, probably anywhere in Europe. Thank you.